From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. As Congress takes up the issue of gun violence to see once again if there's any room for agreement, we ask, are the people really that divided? There's a complete disconnect between lawmakers and what the public actually wants. And I think that's in part what can confuse the debate. Meet the man behind the Denver Accord, a package of research-backed gun policies he hopes will resonate. Later, Colorado ranks high on a list of states for markups in healthcare pricing, plus a Colorado archaeologist who makes researching the past more inclusive, especially for Native Americans. And we answer a Colorado Wonders question. Is the Denver omelet really from Denver? Why the story starts with a sandwich. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Congress remains at odds over what to do about guns and violence. Tuesday, Democrats sent three measures to the full House for debate to limit high-capacity magazines, to keep guns away from people convicted of hate crimes, and to encourage states to pass red flag laws. But Republican leadership is deferring to President Trump, seeing what he'll support before they take any action. This comes after three high-profile mass shootings in August. Most recently, a man in Texas went on a rampage, murdering seven people seemingly at random and injuring more than 20 others before police killed him. After every incident, the same question comes up. What would prevent this? That's where the Denver Accord comes in. Its authors call it an evidence-based roadmap to reduce gun violence in the United States. Devin Hughes is the founder of GVpedia, short for Gun Violencepedia. It's behind the Accord. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. The Denver Accord, obviously implying that there's a Colorado connection to this. We'll get into that in a moment. But I want to understand GVpedia a little better. You say the group doesn't approach the gun debate with a preset agenda, but rather follows evidence. What does the evidence show? So GVpedia has two main parts right now. One is a gun violence study database that houses more than a thousand academic studies on gun violence. These studies come from both sides of the debate. So you'll find studies in there that suggest more gun laws would indeed save lives. And you have others that find that gun laws have limited effects. And what we basically do is look at the totality of the evidence and what studies we feel are the best and most accurate and up-to-date. And then we write white papers and our own research on those findings. And based on what we believe the evidence shows, gun laws, when properly implemented, can save a significant number of lives. And there's significant evidence out there to show that they can be quite effective. And this, in part, was how the Denver Accord was born. You say gun laws, when properly applied, that seems really critical. Why did you add that asterisk? Yes, because one of the things that pro-gun advocates point out is gun laws in certain cases might not work as potentially intended. And the reason for that is often enforcement. We heard from a district attorney recently that laws meant to prevent people who uh, have committed acts of domestic violence from getting guns, uh, that there are essentially no consequences 
for some of them, no serious consequences if indeed they do get a hold of a firearm. Yes, so under the current background check system, if somebody tries lying and buying a federally licensed dealer, they lie on the background check attempting to get a firearm. The background check denies their purchase. Currently, what they're able to do is just, oh, that was a mistake on my part, and walk away. So there's no consequences for them committing what is a crime to lie on the background check form. And then they're just able to walk away and oftentimes go and get a private sale, meet somebody in a parking lot somewhere, and obtain the firearm that way where there's no background check required. Do you look at any of the recent shootings, for instance, in Texas, where it's clear that a a loophole essentially allowed the shooter to get a weapon? Do you look at, at the recent shootings and say a particular policy would have made a difference? That case is a definite yes. So he was able to obtain a firearm through a private sale. Now we don't know all of the details yet and whether the person who sold him that firearm knew that he was prohibited or not. But had universal background checks been implemented, he would not have been able to obtain a firearm in that way. Also, there were apparently a number of red flags where an extreme risk protection order could have made sure any firearms he did have at the time would have been seized temporarily until the threat was dissipated. Let me just say Uh, that Colorado has an extreme risk protection order that's coming into law. It is being challenged. And there has been talk, at least, though no movement, on a federal version of that. So the FBI used Oregon's extreme risk protection order law to disarm a white nationalist who is talking about how he is going to shoot up a bunch of Antifa protesters. Now, it might be possible that he never intended to act on that, But that's certainly a grave concern, and such a concern that the FBI decided to use that law to prevent a future tragedy. So this is an example of a policy in this Denver Accord. It came out of a conference this year that coincided with the 20th anniversary of the attack on Columbine High School. Talk about why you chose to host this assembly in Denver and, like, who took part. So it was... A couple weeks before the 20th anniversary, and it was really to mark that, at least on a national level, there hasn't been much, if any, progress on the issue of gun violence. In fact, in many cases, laws have become substantially weaker. So it was a conference of more than 140 gun violence prevention leaders, survivors, advocates, academics from across the country, and it was really a look at where we've been over the past couple decades and how to move forward and what laws can potentially save lives and what the evidence shows are the best practices. In the end, the Denver Accord advocates several policies, improving the standards for gun ownership, enhancing and enforcing existing law, uh, incentivizing prevention programs, and funding more academic research. More than 40 organizations have signed on to this accord, uh, none of them necessarily surprising. And it it strikes me that one non-starter for a significant chunk of the country is that one of the core principles of the Denver Accord is guns do not make Americans safer. You'll have any number of people in rural Colorado telling you law enforcement can be many minutes away and that guns do make them safer. Uh, Why is that a core principle? 
Right. So the overwhelming academic evidence shows that having a firearm in the home does not make you safer. Uh, Many studies find that a gun in the home doubles your risk of homicide and triples your risk of suicide. And it's as close to a fact as we're going to get in the gun violence debate that guns don't make you safer. And I understand the concerns of many rural residents. I grew up in a farm in Jones, Oklahoma, where the police time might be 30 minutes if you're lucky. But the odds of using a firearm successfully to defend against an intruder is significantly smaller than using it to harm yourself or your family, even if it's an unintentional shooting. That being said, if you choose to have a firearm in the home, there's nothing in the Denver Accord preventing somebody from having a shotgun or a hunting rifle or a revolver. It does ask that that firearm be stored safely and that the person who owns that firearm go through training so they know how to use it responsibly. So the Denver Accord in no way suggests that all the guns should be banned or taken away. That's not what it's about. It's about encouraging responsible ownership and making sure people understand the risks that are associated with owning a deadly product. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. If you found yourself asking, what could prevent mass shootings and gun violence in general? Uh, What does the research say? Uh, One place you might look is the Denver Accord. It is a laying out of policies that its creators say is evidence-based. And I wonder if this debate has become, in a way, so symbolic for people, so much a part of their identity politically and otherwise, that facts uh, and research and evidence may not matter to the extent you wish they would. In a way, that's always true. I mean, I feel that in any debate on any subject, facts and data should be central. But I do feel in the gun violence debate in particular, what happens on the ground in like just conversations with friends and family versus what we see online are two entirely different worlds. So while online debates can result in a significant amount of mudslinging, in person those conversations are quite different. And I've found that NRA members are quite receptive to policies that encourage responsible gun ownership. Like what? What are examples? Universal background checks being one, we find that overall in the country there's about 95% support for universal background checks. There's more than 80% support for laws such as licensing. Extreme risk protection orders are something that even some conservative lawmakers are considering and helping write bills on. And so there's a core willingness to attack this issue. Most Americans understand that gun violence is a substantial public health problem. For example, in my home state of Oklahoma, the support for measures such as universal background checks ranges in the 80% range. So there's a complete disconnect, I feel, between lawmakers and what the public actually wants on this issue. And I think that's in part what can confuse the debate, because when we look at the gridlock in Washington and even down into state houses, it's like, oh, Americans don't agree on this issue. Well, gun violence prevention is one of the few issues 
that polls so highly in the 80s to 90% on specific measures. It's merely a question of whether some lawmakers are to beholden to the gun lobby or do buy into some of the myths surrounding guns, including the myth that a firearm in the home will make you safer. And that's not the case. I have seen competing research on whether the assault weapons ban, which expired in the United States, uh, whether reinstituting it would have any effect on gun violence rates. What does the research show? So the research is mixed on it, largely because the assault weapons ban law that was passed in 1994, along with the Brady background check bill, was filled with loopholes from the outset. So it grandfathered in all existing assault weapons under its purview. And then it made various um, tweaks in terms of design to where it was very easy for gun manufacturers just to change a couple superficial things about the rifle in question and get around the law. So it was a flawed law in the U.S. And so there have been studies of the assault weapons ban that found no noticeable effect on overall gun violence. Where there has been an effect, even with all of those loopholes, was on mass shootings. So mass shootings, since the assault weapons ban was lifted back in the early 2000s, mass shootings have skyrocketed in terms of how lethal they are because an AR-15 and other variations of that type of weaponry are able to inflict carnage on a scale that is very hard to duplicate with other types of weapons. So the assault weapons ban did have an effect on mass shootings. And when you look at an assault weapons style ban in Australia, for example, where they were far more comprehensive and enforced it vigorously, we saw that gun violence fell very dramatically. You have sent letters to the presidential candidates to adopt the Denver Accord, and you say that its main purpose is to shift the conversation to the most evidence-based policies. I wonder if there's a policy that people would point to as a panacea, um, as effective, that research just hasn't shown to be. Most often, the law that's seen as closest to the panacea is universal background checks, which, while effective, the research actually shows that permit to purchase or having a license to obtain a firearm is a significantly more effective method of implementing universal background checks than not having a license attached with it. Huh, so what would that look like? How would you qualify to get a gun license? In states that have already implemented permit to purchase... Um, many of the northeastern states, such as Massachusetts, for example, Connecticut, you go to see the local police department, you can get a fingerprint, you undergo a background check there, and you basically get what's essentially a driver's license for a firearm. You can attach training to that permit as well to make sure somebody who's obtaining a firearm is fully qualified to be able to use that firearm. And basically, it just puts in-person contact between the person and the police. So that way, if, say, it's a criminal who's trying to obtain a firearm, he's less likely to try to go through that process. And it also helps close the private sales loophole. 
So it's a far more efficient system that's easily enforceable. And it's what essentially the rest of the developed world has, as well as some states in the U.S., and it's been shown to be quite effective. There have been studies in Connecticut when they adopted it. They found that their gun violence rates fell substantially. When Missouri repealed their law, they found that gun violence rates went up significantly in the aftermath of that. Before we go, what do you make of this slippery slope argument that if those who think their Second Amendment rights are somehow under attack, that that ceding an inch means giving a mile? What we've actually seen is the opposite of that play out over the past few decades. For example, many states used to have either permit to purchase or may issue concealed carry laws that would make sure the police would have to sign off on giving somebody a concealed carry permit, or concealed carry was banned completely. And so we've seen, over time, a degradation of public safety laws. So actually, the slippery slope has been the other way around. Yet in states such as Connecticut, we have not seen moves despite having a permit-to-purchase system to ban all firearms. And even if there was an attempt to ban all firearms, it wouldn't be feasible. There's more than 300 million firearms in the U.S. Banning all of them is not going to happen, either politically or feasibly. But that doesn't mean there's measures that we can take to save lives while allowing for responsible gun ownership, while making the public as safe as we possibly can. Because this is not just about mass shootings. It's about the kind of everyday violence that we see, and it's about suicide, for instance, uh, turning that gun on yourself. Thanks very much for being with us. Thank you. Devin Hughes is the founder of GVpedia, a nonprofit that collects research on gun policy. He spearheaded the Denver Accord after a conference in Colorado focused on reducing gun violence. I've just tweeted a link to the Denver Accord at CPR Warner. You go to the doctor, they run a few tests, you don't think much of it, and then the bill comes, and it seems outrageous. Well, Dr. Marty McCary says that's more likely to happen in Colorado than in many other states. His research finds Colorado ranks 12th for marked-up health care prices. Dr. McCary's new book is The Price We Pay, What Broke American Health Care and How to Fix It?, McCary is a surgeon and professor of health policy at Johns Hopkins. Doctor, welcome to the program. Great to be with you, Ryan. You tell a story early in the book relayed by a friend of yours. A woman spends two hours in the ER. She gets an IV and some basic tests. She's hit with a $69,000 bill. And uh, this friend of yours knows the hospital CEO, told him, told him about the ER visit and asked the CEO, to guess what it costs. What was the CEO's guess? Well, many of these prices are bogus, you know. So when the the friend said, oh, I'll talk to the hospital CEO for you and see if I can get this bill reduced, he went to the CEO and said, hey, my friend under, went to the emergency room, had exactly what you described done. It took a couple hours. Guess what your hospital charged her? He then cringed, kind of embarrassed, and said, maybe $5,000? No, no, it was way north of that. And so he was embarrassed, and then he said, let me take care of that for you. 
You know, a lot of people are getting their bills forgiven because they know somebody or they fight or they get to the right person. But why can't we have honest prices in healthcare? And today in America, the game of price gouging and predatory billing is now threatening the great public trust in America's hospitals and the medical profession. I think of price gouging as illegal in so many respects. I would think that insurers would have protections against price gouging. That's not necessarily the case. No, I mean, in Colorado in particular, uh, you've got some health systems with such dominant market share. And look at remote locations. I mean, those hospitals can charge whatever they want. And um, there are no protections. But the free market is supposed to protect us. The problem is that we don't have a level playing field. When food companies would each argue their products were healthier, they were taking people for a ride until we had nutrition labels. And in the same way, we need prices, real prices, not crazy marked up prices where everybody gets a secret negotiated discount based on who your employer is or who you know but real prices. And one of the exciting things in, in writing the book, The Price We Pay, was to tell the story of the many disruptors in healthcare who were pushing the field, creating real tools for patients, things like MD Save, where you can look up where to go for care and what the real price is. And also, um, I look at some of these other uh, centers now that are saying, enough is enough. We're going to offer a menu of fair prices. It doesn't matter who's paying, an insurance company or an individual. And that's the Surgery Center of Oklahoma. So a lot of really cool disruption going on because, you know, people are fed up. People are getting crushed with their medical bills. And, and, and policymakers uh, need to hear it. I tell them all the time, Americans are getting hammered with these out-of-control costs. You talk about bogus costs. We know that ER care is especially expensive, in part because an ER has to be mounted, ready for anything, round the clock. Uh, and so I, I suppose there would be some who might push back to say, well, of course it's going to be expensive if you go to the ER. Uh, what, are you, what are you saying? Well, look, I'm a doctor and I'm proud to be a doctor. And I'll tell you that when somebody's in the emergency room, we doctors, the same doctors, go down there and do what we do best. We take care of people. But um, no one's suggesting we give you a price when you have a heart attack. But 60% of medical care is shoppable. And people are coming in looking to deliver a baby, and they're just saying, if I have a regular, uncomplicated delivery, how much is it going to be? And even you know, and no one's given them a price. They're given the same runaround. For 50 years, hospitals have been saying, we can't give you a price. Uh, imagine if airlines told you that and they said, we're going to bill you after the flight. After uh, the we flight. Can't, we don't know if you're going to consume a beverage or there could be a flight delay. Price gouging would ensue. Yeah. Just briefly, how, how did we get here to, like, to such irrational pricing? <laughs> well, first of all, we have really good people in healthcare. The people running the University of Colorado Health System. I know some of these folks. They're great people. People running the insurance companies in Colorado. Nurses, doctors, receptionists in the emergency room, everybody goes into healthcare to help people and contribute to society. I'm not talking about them. We have good people working in a horrible system right now that is thriving off of gouging enabled by a lack of transparency, just like if you didn't have prices on a travel site. What do you think the airlines would charge you if they didn't have to show prices on travel sites? They would gouge you. You'd get surprise bills for a beverage, right? I mean, 
the entire system that we've inherited is a crazy game that is right now about to be disrupted by these disruptors that I write about. And that game is that you magnify the prices, you inflate them to some absurd level, and then offer secret discounts to individual groups and insurance companies and employers and individuals and poor patients. And the reality is that it's just not honest. It violates the public trust in the medical profession. And to hear that some hospitals are now suing patients, which goes on in Colorado, uh, it's a disgrace. And that's why my team has taken on these cases and shut it down around the country, where we'll go in there and create public accountability. And we'll talk to the hospital execs, board members, even donors, saying this violates the great medical heritage of taking people at a time when they're vulnerable. Why didn't the Affordable Care Act address this to some extent? Well, the Affordable Care Act tried to do two things. It tried to expand coverage with patient protections, which it did, and it tried to lower health care costs, which it did not do. And that's why I, I tell the conservatives, hey, repealing the Affordable Care Act does not fix our cost crisis. The, the bill simply failed to lower costs, and it's not because they were bad people. It's just because it's hard. And the story that no one is talking about, that we need to talk about, is that health care costs are really high because of three things, middlemen, pricing failures, and inappropriate care. And for each of those problems, I go into them in the book, The Price We Pay, with all the research and the disruptors and exciting things happening. And in the end, Ryan, I left very optimistic that we're going to get ourselves out of this problem because people are fed up right now. Who are the middlemen? So take, for example, drug pricing. The pharmacy benefit middle um, managers, or PBMs, they go to businesses and say, we're going to take care of all your drugs that your employees uh, take, and we're going to bill you directly, and we're going to get you discounts and savings. Well, right now, they come in and they gouge. Many of these companies are now merged with pharmacies or insurance companies where they lost that independent fiduciary, and they're gouging businesses across America. The brokers who sell these plans are getting paid massive kickbacks, which you would think are illegal, but they're not in healthcare. Same with the organizations that sell drugs and, and supplies and devices to hospitals. They take kickbacks from the pharma companies and device companies. These are th not just sort of bad things out there you can't control. These are things every business in America can change by choosing a different contract for their PBM, by shopping for health insurance differently, from getting a broker that does not take a massive cut or commission or kickback. So I've put several of the good actors on the website restoringmedicine.org, where we also have 20 ways you can fight your medical bills, and people need to be educated and empowered. I mean, look, The Big Short did that for the banking industry. Huh. The movie The Big Short educated <laughs> yeah. everybody. And that's what we need in healthcare. And the, this book, The Price We Pay, is intended to be the big short for healthcare, to educate the masses because, look, we're already spending a ton of money on health care. Uh, they've trained you well to say the title of your book, Dr. McCary. Okay, uh, <laughs> in your book, you focus on surprise billing. In Colorado, a new law goes into effect in January, which uh, prohibits providers from overcharging if someone unknowingly goes out of network, and it puts safeguards in place to reduce unexpected medical bills. 
How much do you think something like that would help? Well, it's a t- trying to address a symptom of a larger problem. But I, I've got to be very honest with you as a surgeon. I'm very disappointed with the doctor's groups. They've moved into the space of dark money to crush any legislative action that addresses surprise bills in any one of the many ways that people are trying to deal with it. And look, your legislators in Colorado are getting an earful. Your members of Congress in D.C. are getting an earful from everyday folks getting crushed with the cost of of medical care and surprise bills. And they're trying to do something. Unfortunately, policy is mostly driven by the special interests and not by the patients, by the everyday folks. And that's why we need healthcare literacy. No doubt healthcare is looming large in the 2020 presidential election. Uh, you know, we're hearing talk of single payer, Medicare for all. Uh, meanwhile, the future of the Affordable Care Act, as it as it stands, is tenuous. Uh, for this book, you visited 22 cities, met with stakeholders across the country. I want to know if you heard consensus on policy. A lot of what we focused on so far is market-driven, consumer-driven. Well, Ryan, I really believe we should not be listening to the cable news echo chambers that would suggest we're a divided country. That's not really the decision in front of us. The, the, there's broad consensus in the United States. If, if we can explain health care for the simple money games that are happening, there's broad consensus about what to do. I mean, corruption is not a red or blue issue, right? Pay, special interest paying off policymakers who are trying to do basic protections for everyday Americans, that's not a conservative or liberal issue. It's a corruption issue. It's a dark money issue. And right now, I believe there's broad consensus that we can address these three fundamental problems, pricing failures, middlemen, and inappropriate care. Yeah, let's, Why don't you we know, talk about inappropriate care? Because you, you did a fascinating survey for this book, uh, asking doctors, fellow physicians, um, like, how much health care do you deliver that you think is not necessary? What, what do you find when you ask that? Yeah, we asked doctors, 2,100 doctors around the country, of the care that they actually see around them, not themselves, but around them. What percent of medical care is unnecessary? The answer was 21%. That's 25% of testing, diagnostic tests, 22% of medications, 11% of procedures. I mean, isn't the opioid crisis just one manifestation of our broader problem of overtreatment. That was just one medication. Okay, believe me, trust me, that same overtreatment is going on with a lot of other medications. And the cool thing going on right now, Ryan, is a lot of doctors, a new generation, almost a movement of folks are saying, hey, can we treat back pain with ice and physical therapy instead of surgery and opioids? Can we treat diabetes with cooking classes? Can we treat abdominal pain with healthy foods? And right now you're seeing this entire redesign of primary care called relationship-based clinics. They're all over Colorado. Anyone over 65 can sign on to these things with really no cost to you. And it's an exciting thing in healthcare right now. One of the many exciting things I've discovered. So you're finding that about a fifth or a quarter of procedures or services ordered by doctors, even the physicians feel are unnecessary. What is driving them then to order them? Is that greed? 
uh, you, you talked earlier about how much you think physicians have the, the right motivation. Well, first of all, we don't want to create hysteria out there. Most doctors do the right thing or always try to. But people should know that in a survey of doctors, they not only identified that about one in five things is excessive, but they also identified the reasons. They said it's, number one, the consumerist culture. People coming in demanding antibiotics for their kid with a viral infection. Mm. It's concerns of malpractice. It's also the perverse incentive, right? Why do we pay more for quantity than quality? Uh, So right now we've seen doctors very honest about the problem and trying to address it. And in today's Wall Street Journal, uh, they profiled a a project that we did to reduce unnecessary Mohs surgery, uh, a project which cost $150,000 but saved the system $27 million. That's the tremendous opportunity to restore medicine back to its mission of great bedside care. That's appropriate. Tell us about that surgery. So... Well, what's, what we do is we ask doctors, tell us about an area of overuse in your field. Mm-hmm. And they'll tell us it's too many leg stents. It's too much, um, too many, um, removing too many blocks of skin cancer per skin cancer lesion that the doc sees. They tell us where the perverse incentives have created a frenzy of overtreatment. Now, once again, most doctors do the right thing or always try to. But what, what we find in the big data is that 8 to 15% of doctors are extreme outliers, practicing outside of an area of what doctors consider reasonable. That is, doing a C-section in more than 50% of uncomplicated pregnancies. Oh. Okay, it didn't matter the reasons that's inappropriate. And at minimum, that doctor should see where they stand on the bell curve. In our study, doctors who see their outliers auto-correct 83% of the time, and that results in the big savings. Showing them that data, that's fascinating. And there's that kind of peer pressure. Here's how you measure up to other physicians in the field. I know they've tried this with, like, electrical building uh, billing. You know, here's, here's how much energy your neighbor is using. I suppose to some extent that could be uh, exercised in healthcare. Uh, Dr. McCary, this has been fascinating. Thanks so much for your time. Great to be with you, Ryan. Dr. Marty McCary is a Johns Hopkins health policy expert. He's written The Price We Pay, What Broke American Health Care and How to Fix It. His research shows that Colorado ranks 12th among the states for marked-up health care prices. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The state of California legalized medical marijuana first, and they did it in 1996. But what a lot of people don't know is that that came directly out of the AIDS epidemic of the late 80s and early 90s. The guys always wanted to smoke weed because it was the thing that the guys noticed that made them feel immediately better. What medical marijuana owes to the LGBTQ community. On the latest episode of On Something, subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's amazing what you find when you dig through a rich man's trash. That's what they did in Colorado Springs. But this was an archaeological endeavor, unearthing what the city's founder, General William Jackson Palmer, threw away. It's a story we first brought you last year. This is what archaeologists do, is they they rummage through, they, they research and identify people's material that were left behind. And trash is an important way for us to understand past cultures. 
Well, some of the discoveries go on display this weekend at the Colorado Springs Pioneers Museum. And we're going to talk about this now for an update with Anna Cordova. She's Colorado Springs' lead archaeologist, has a lot of responsibilities. For instance, she's the liaison between the city and Native American tribes. She also trains other archaeologists. And Anna, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. General Palmer was a Civil War general, co-founded the Denver and Rio Grande Western Railroad. Uh, tell us about a revealing object or two going on display. Um, let's see. We've got some that really speak to the the connection of this trash to Palmer. We have a silver, uh, well, it's actually tin plated, silver looking dish that has the word melon on it, which is um, his wife's maiden name. So if we didn't have strong enough connections before that, we certainly do now. Um, we also just have things like bricks and things that we know were um, unique bricks that were enameled, white, fancy kind of bricks that we know were in the castle in the basement lining the wall of the bowling alley. Which castle? Oh, okay. <laughs> There's a lot there. Uh, right. Which castle? And tell us about the bowling alley. He lived well. He did live well. So he built a castle in Glen Erie, which is just north of Garden of the Gods, in 1904. And he had a bowling alley in the in the basement of that castle. You mentioned melon. Is that like Carnegie melon? Uh, I'm not sure that they're not, related. Okay. But she probably came from money as well? Well, he actually didn't really come from money. Um, I think her family was fairly well off, but certainly he made a lot more money after he sold the railroads in 1901. So they started off with, I think, some money, but he certainly worked very hard. That's That's actually one of the myths about Palmer that this exhibit is trying to dispel is that Palmer came from money where he re- he really didn't. His father was quite poor and often was filing for bankruptcy and things. So uh, he was kind of a self-made man. All of the things you can learn from people's trash. You right. know, uh, it was this story that taught me the term midden, which is essentially a trash heap. Uh, are there other middens that you hope to go through? Like, is this an example of something there may be more of in Colorado Springs? Well, that's one of the more common things that we come across, especially when we're surveying on undeveloped land, is we come across, you know, trash people left trash all over the place, kind of like we do now. (laughs) Sometimes it's interesting. I imagine many times it's not. Right. Sometimes we're getting, you know, big piles of uh, tin cans from the 1930s that are not real exciting, but still they're archaeological and they tell a story, and so we record them. Did you always want to be an archaeologist? I would say from about 16 or 17 years old, I did. I was always interested in history, even as a real small kid. Um, I remember even in second grade being really interested in the Revolutionary War and just fascinated by the past. And so wasn't aware that you could be an archaeologist till I was about 16. What happened when you were 16? Um, I started looking into colleges, and then I started talking. It was actually my mom that told me that she had wanted to be an archaeologist when she was younger um, and had looked into it at a few colleges, and that was the first time it really clicked that you can do archaeology all over the world. It's not just ancient Egypt and things like that. And and I wasn't aware that they would pay you to do those types of things, and so um, that's kind of where that started. It's fascinating to me that, in a way, you've picked up where your mom left off. Right, yeah. I think that's that's a pretty cool thing. Okay. To your work with tribes, I'll say that you're a part Navajo on your father's side, not an enrolled member. Uh, There are laws, of course, governing when you have to involve tribes in discoveries. 
but you really strive to go beyond the kind of federal obligation. How so? We very much try to do that. Um, I think the city of Colorado Springs has always, has maybe not always, but recently been very good with trying to involve the indigenous voice in a lot of their projects. And so when I came on, um, like you said, a lot of the times it's required anytime there's any sort of federal nexus and sometimes when there's a state nexus involved. But a lot of our projects don't involve either of those. It's just a local city uh, kind of project. And we always try to bring at least um, at least the two Ute tribes in, and we do more than that if we can on projects that are going to impact, especially places that are really special to the tribes um, like Garden of the Gods and places like that. Yeah, so give us an example of a project in which you have tried to involve the tribes early on. Uh, let's see. Last fall, uh, we we were making plans to put uh, new bathroom facilities in Garden of the Gods Park. And that was only city money involved. We weren't required to do it, but we brought um, the Southern Ute and the Ute Mountain Ute out to ask them what they thought of the lo- the proposed locations that we had. Huh. and asked them what they thought of those, and they, they gave us some input, and so we placed them according to some of their advice. That's fascinating. In a way, placing a restroom seems so prosaic, and yet it can have effects. So what was the kind of feedback they gave you about what sites to choose? Well, there were certain areas there that have significance to them, in particular because of certain ceremonies that they'd done even recently as recently as the 80s. And so... And some of it's just the view shed or things like that. Sometimes they're very actually practical with um, with why they want things here or there. Or, for example, um, in one project, there was a spring located near the project area, and um, that was important to them. And so they asked us to move that to a different location, and we did. It, it sounds like there was absolutely a time, perhaps in Colorado Springs history and in the history of many other communities, where the bathroom would get built without consultation. Do, oh, do you very think that's much true? so. Very much so. What, and is, I, what does that tell us about archaeology in general? I think archaeology has very colonistic and imperialistic roots um, where it's been kind of the save the past for the Indians um, because they're disappearing or they can't tell their own story. It's been very paternalistic in a lot of ways. And so I think as an archaeologist, I'm very aware of that. And I think a lot of other archaeologists now are aware of that and want to, to give that indigenous voice more much more uh, volume than it's had before, and it's 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 extremely important. How do indigenous people make you better at archaeology? Like, I wonder if there are actually times when they've opened your eyes to something you were just totally unaware of. Oh, very much. I think just in kind of an indigenous perspective of the world and relationship to places and to land and landscapes, just that those connections, I think, that that many indigenous people have with places that can translate over to other people. And when, when huh. we can translate that over to other people, then perhaps they can take, take more care of it when they're better connected to it. Yeah. What do you see in Colorado Springs with different eyes now? Oh, everything. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was born and raised in Colorado Springs. And so I, I, I've always thought of the past there, but I now know that I know nothing about the history of Colorado Springs. Um, <laughs> Not nothing, but I know so little compared. I have so much to learn, and it's fascinating. I love learning it. I make new connections all the time. Really nice to meet you. Thanks, Anna. Thank you. Anna Cordova is the lead archaeologist in Colorado Springs.
In Colorado Wonders this week, we answered if the Denver boot really was invented in Denver. The short answer is yes. Well, that story prompted another listener to ask about the Denver omelette. Did it really start here? You know, ham, cheese, onion, bell peppers. It made it to the big screen even in the 1994 Quentin Tarantino film Pulp Fiction. One minute they're having a Denver omelette. Next minute someone's sticking a gun in their face. Well, a few years ago, journalist Matt Masick wrote about the history of the Denver omelette for Colorado Life magazine. Let's listen back. The Denver omelette didn't start as an omelette. It started as the Denver sandwich, which is basically a Denver omelette between two pieces of toast. So it's an egg sandwich. It's an egg sandwich. It's one of the first big popular egg sandwiches. Uh, It really started appearing on the scene about 1900. And by 1950, there are magazine and newspaper articles calling it one of the most popular sandwiches in the country. Uh, In 1959, there is a a nationally syndicated article saying the Denver sandwich is the most popular sandwich in the country with a name. Wow. And it's ham, cheese, onions, bell peppers between two pieces of bread. Right. And so the heyday was in the 1950s. And by the 1980s, the Denver omelet had surpassed the sandwich in popularity. Until today, the Denver sandwich is all but extinct. Uh, There are only a few places where you can still get them regularly. For some reason, Wisconsin is a hotbed of Denver sandwiches. (laughs) Okay. I guess they have the cheese for it. Um, Is there a Denver sandwich to be had in Denver? No. I searched high and low to find an actual Denver sandwich in the Denver city limits. Can't be done, as far as I know. You can prove me wrong. But in Arvada and in Wheat Ridge are a couple of restaurants that still have them. And there's one in Wheat Ridge. Lil Nick's Pizza has a Denver sandwich of sorts. Of sorts. They have their own spin on it? Right. Uh, The owner, Bob Quintana, grew up slinging hash in restaurants in North Denver. He started in the 1950s, and he made a ton of Denver sandwiches. Had the Hispanic and Italian communities there. He took those influences, and on the Denver sandwich that he has, it's called the North Denver Sandwich, has mozzarella cheese, has a roasted green chili, and the best part, it comes with a side of marinara for dipping. Oh, wow. The infusion of both the Italian and the Mexican there. Uh, Where is the other Denver sandwich? It's uh, at George's Cafe in Arvada. It's basically like a BLT, except instead of bacon, you have a little bit of Denver omelet. I suppose the more fundamental question is whether it's a sandwich or an omelet, why that combination of ingredients became the Denver omelet. There are a few theories on this. Uh, One of them is that people out on the frontier might have less than fresh eggs and might want to mask the spoiled flavor of it. Uh, So you throw those things on to to make it taste nice. Okay. (laughs) And what are some other theories? Well, uh, one is that Chinese railroad laborers came up with this uh, in the 1800s, sort of modifying their egg food young and turning it into a omelet slash sandwich. Ah, there's actually a marker that is, a, you know, about the birthplace of the Denver omelet. Yeah, uh, downtown on California between 15th and 16th streets, there's a tiny little plaque on the sidewalk that you can walk over without noticing saying, this is the birthplace of the Denver omelet. They don't mention the sandwich because it's a little too complicated for a, a plaque. <laughs> It's actually got the recipe on it. What do you think the relationship is between this city and its 
omelet and or sandwich. You know, it's a little bit ambivalent. You know, Philly is proud of their cheesesteak. Chicago is proud of their deep dish pizza. And Denver, eh, not so much. <laughs> so, some people even call it a Western omelet which I just find horribly unpatriotic. <laughs> unpatriotic. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Journalist Matt Masick speaking with me in 2016 about the Denver omelet. A question about it came through Colorado Wonders. We'd love to thank the person who asked that question, but they only signed their email exactly. <laughs> And that's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. Thanks for spending time with us. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters. I'm at CPR Warner. And we are CPR News on Facebook.